0: Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences.
1: Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host Max Cantor and today on the show I have somebody who is currently an improviser with the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City. He performs with the group Sleuth and he also had a podcast called Improv Beat by Beat. And finally he's helped write some of the Princeton Reviews test preparation books. So uh, thanks to him. getting me prepared for the sat all those years ago good work uh please welcome to the show curtis rutherford welcome to the show curtis
0: hey thanks how's it going glad i could help with the sat
1: yes good work sat and then i will tell you uh i did not use any preparation for the act i just went into it and i didn't even know there was a science section had, been, I was, I was sitting there and then they're like, all right, uh, flip your page. It's time for the science section. And I'm like, what science section? <laughs> it was a, it w- was not a good moment. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was, that's so awesome that, that you did that. And I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to learning about, you know, what, what that's like to write for a test preparation book, uh, right. but to, to jump right in to the interview and to learn a little bit about you and your comedy influences, you know, mm-hmm. uh, growing up, what late night television did you watch that influenced you in your comedy
0: so for me the big one was letterman at first and it was when i was in eighth grade i was living in colorado at the time and they did one of those like every once in a while at like 8 p.m they would run like a best of dave type thing and it would be like a, a bunch of his bits right Mm-hmm. And it would be like just devoid of the talk show, just like these are some of the like, you know, on location bits and, and, um, and that kind of thing. And so they showed one at like 8 PM, which, you know, I was in eighth grade, so I rarely stayed up past 10. And so that was like my first time seeing Letterman. And it was all of these things that when Dave retired, uh, it was a lot of the same pieces that they showed and like the best of retirement Uh, you know, the best, best of Letterman package. And so it was like him going to Taco Bell and just ordering insane amounts of tacos and him working behind the drive through counter and him and all of the Rupert, uh, you know, him and and Rupert, uh, you know, going out and Rupert being a waiter and him being in the background, him dealing with kids, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was like my first introduction to a lot of late night stuff. And it was also like, very much now like as an improviser it's a lot of you know reacting to people and also sometimes setting them up or reacting hard and kind of like you know being unusual and adding that thing and like i loved how much dave would play both sides of either if he was with kids he would just absolutely just kind of like play the straight man and like without like talking down to them or anything like that he would just set up these ridiculous scenarios, and then let the kids kind of react, and then just keep like provoking them mm-hmm. bit by bit. And then, and then on the other side, he would you know like be an absolute insane person, and you know work a dr- the drive-through at Taco Bell and just try to get somebody to order as many tacos as possible, and then he'd pay them back like just insane scenarios. Right. So that was kind of my first intro. That and then from there I got into like Conan, which is very much kind of the same thing. Of what I loved was the, especially in his first couple of years. Like I think I started watching when he'd been doing it for like maybe two years. It was much more like absurdist. It was still like a lot of masturbating bear pimp bot weird characters and like uh, you know sketches that would go nowhere or weird things that would intrude on the interviews. Mm-hmm. And I loved that like absurdism of all of it that it would just kind of go anywhere um and often the point was just uh let's do this and maybe it'll be funny or maybe it'll fall flat entirely and we don't really know until we've done it."
1: <laughs> right now i will say that's crazy i didn't know uh that letterman used to have those like highlight shows where they just showed the highlights yeah so that's i, I-
0: i think it was like one of those like cbs like uh we're the fourth out of three networks right now and we need to try to get people to letterman and so yeah they would like show it a little bit earlier and do it every like i don't know i'm gonna guess every couple of years just to like hey remember we got letterman he left uh i know nbc has leno and he's doing real well now but like we've we've got letterman
1: (laughs) right yeah yeah, so so your attraction to these late night comedy shows really came from the sketches and the bits that they were doing, rather than the monologues and the interviews.
0: Yes, and I definitely like then started to get much more into the monologues and interviews, especially, um, especially watching. You know, Letterman is great for interviews because when he didn't care, he did not care. <laughs> right. And, and watching those interviews, um, just kind of like, how much can he set up this terrible, you know, vacuous person and show them as terrible and vacuous without being too much of a kind of like making us hate Dave and really making it clear that like, no, this person that I've invited on my show really whatever is is terrible or Like, even when it was just somebody that, and Conan was also great at this, when it was just, like, a comedian or actor that they really respected, and just, like, watching them kind of, like, tell stories. Like, obviously, like, I was a huge Norm Macdonald fan, so every time Norm was on Conan especially, it was, you know, watch it as closely as possible and observe, you know, just watch Conan break every single time Norm would go into a new, like, rambling story. Right. But it was was definitely the sketches and characters that was that kind of first hit for me that brought me into all of that stuff.
1: So when you're watching these sketches and all these character bits, did you ever feel an inspiration to try to create your own?
0: Not really. I thought, like, as far as creation, I would think much more in terms of First off, I'm sure what a lot of us did of like the, what would I talk about if I were on this show? Like, you know, like the, could I do that? Or if I were interviewing somebody, you know, how would I have responded? What little questions would I have? Like, what jokes would I have made and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what I thought about first was kind of like joke by joke and much more of like taking apart the top 10 list for instance. Right. And like, okay, how would they space out their jokes? Why was there always the funniest joke at number two and then a throwaway joke at number one? Mm-hmm. Like what were those like little things they did and how did they break it apart, you know, page by page, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: So you, wow. So that's really interesting that you really started to break down the the science and then the art of why and how they were making people laugh.
0: Yeah, I it, I, I think it's just one of those things that like I've always been very interested in in a very analytical way. and Especially with something as numerical as a top 10 list, mm-hmm. it, it gives you that kind of start of like, okay, this is how they lay it out. When they repeat jokes, they never repeat it like seven and six. It'll always be joke seven has, a, has some reference and then maybe they come back to it on joke three or four. Like they try to do it on the next page of jokes. Mm-hmm. Like little things like that you start to notice, especially day in, day out of, of watching it
1: so did you ever find yourself like breaking down analytically other things besides just late night
0: yeah i mean definitely for sketch like i was also around the same time i got very into monty python because it was maybe like a year or two before uh comedy central it was like you know they'd been around for a couple years and so what they would do is on sunday mornings they would devoid of commercials, they would show an episode of Monty Python, an episode of, I think you bet your life and an episode of the Jack Benny program. And basically it was just like, you know what? We're not making money right now. Here's two hours of comedy that we're basically paying nothing for. Here you go. And so I would record all of that. And then I would definitely like go through and for some Monty Python sketches, it would be like, okay, what are they? Where are they taking a left turn and where are they setting up your expectation for a right? And then the same thing with like Jack Benny, it was all about timing. Like it would just be like watching of how much does he milk each reaction? Why, you know, where does he look for different things? How, when is he talking to Rochester as opposed to Mary? And when is he, you know, delivering a joke to Mary while Rochester is clearly playing the joke on Jack, that kind of thing of breaking down those interactions between the different characters in that way.
1: So did you know a lot of people, and did you have a friend group that were as analytical and interested in comedy as you were when you were a kid and then a teen and eventually a young adult?
0: Not really, although one of my best friends in middle school, uh, my dad was in the army, so we moved around a bunch, but one of my best friends in middle school Again, like when Comedy Central was early on, they would just show hours and hours of stand-up. And they had like five different shows that were basically like, here's stand-up repackaged. And it was just like, they had short attention span theater, which was just a bunch of clips of stand-up. They would have like, I forget, like premium blend or house, like just all these names for like the same thing of, here's 22 minutes or 24 minutes of stand-up packaged and me and my friend would memorize whole routines and then in during recess we would like present them to each other and like (laughs) okay great here's this thing and just constantly like okay i know this eight minutes of this norm routine let me give you all of this in my best norm impression oh okay now you know this uh kevin um kevin meany routine and like it was just a lot of that or like the shortcuts of referring to that in the same way that people talk about the Simpsons and where it's just kind of like a, you know, everything's coming up millhouse that hits a certain Simpsons allusion to some people where they know exactly what you're referencing. We would do that with just like random nine, you know, early nineties stand-up comics. So that was probably the closest to that level of analysis it was just memorization, which is often that first step in breaking down comedy.
1: Right, yeah, that's very true. And when you're when you're performing for your friend, did you ever realize that this is what you wanted to do? You wanted to be a comedian?
0: Um I don't think I don't think I thought of myself as funny. I which like in I have a class comedian award from like 4th grade. My teacher misspelled comedian, but it was like I definitely was funny, but I never thought of myself as funny and I think I was in like I was in 11th grade and we were in Germany. No, maybe it was like 12th grade and we were in Germany. And I remember I was like joking with this guy that I didn't really know in a math class. And he was like, man, you are so funny. And I was like, am I? I thought we were both just adding to this thing. And it was only when he said that, that I realized like, oh no, I was telling most of this. It was like a random story about, uh, the PX, which is the. Uh, it's the, the, the shop on all military bases is like the post exchange. So it was just, we were telling some story about that. And I was just adding jokes about how I think they've like sold too much cat litter. I don't remember, (laughs) but it was like, I never thought of myself as funny. I thought of myself as purely just a, um, lover of comedy and it wasn't really until, you know, like end of high school beginning and then like in college where i really thought of like oh this is something i love to do and probably could do
1: wow so wow that that's that's funny so what did you think you wanted to do before you settled on comedian
0: i mean i like science fiction author or a million other things like i had no idea for a while i was like very into computer programming and then i realized that I would write these computer programs i like write these games and then write the manual for them and at the time like the manuals you'd give somebody like a floppy disk and it would have the game and then it would have a text file of the manual mm-hmm. and i had more fun writing the manuals and writing jokes in the manuals for these like dumb ship battle games that i had made or you know like you know war simulation games that i had made so it was kind of like oh do I really enjoy programming? I don't know if I do. I think I enjoy writing more. Let me write. Oh, do I really enjoy writing science fiction or do I enjoy writing weird, funny science fiction? And it was kind of a like bit by bit, oh, let me try this. What is the common thread in all these things I'm trying? Oh, I guess it's comedy. That's the part I like. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this other crap? Right. So it was much more of a slow, uh, gradual process.
1: Okay. And you mentioned you mentioned Germany because your dad was in the army. Did you travel? Mm-hmm. Were you traveling internationally a lot too?
0: Not that much. Germany was the only place uh, internationally we lived, okay. and that was like for two years, and that was on an army base. So, like, all of my friends were either American or half American, half German, and so it kind of very much was still just like it wasn't wildly different from living in america it was just basically an america where you could walk out the back of the base and suddenly everybody was speaking another language yeah. but still knew english so if you got lost you were like uh where's the richburg base and then be like you know oh uh over there and they would have no problem responding like oh take this take this main over here and then take a left and then you'll be there after you know two kilometers i was like okay thank you random german person who speaks my language and i have not bothered to speak your language
1: right did did your two years in germany have any effect on either the way you saw the world through a comedic lens or your comedy in general
0: i don't know i would um one thing that it did affect a lot and especially with the late night is so by that point, I was like very into Letterman. I liked Conan, but I like in like eighth and ninth grade, I would really only watch him on like Friday nights because I could then stay up later on those nights. But one great thing about living in Germany was so they have the TV you get if you're on base in Germany is called the Armed Forces Network. And it's basically they have a, they have a channel, a couple different channels that It's repackaged American shows for people serving in the armed forces. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they will take shows, um, you know, pay whatever licensing fee and then just show it to on American bases, wherever you are in the world. And they'll replace the commercials with like, basically think of them as like PSAs. So it'll be like, rather than a commercial, it'll be, here's the history of the tri corner hat or, Hey, if you need to talk to your commanding officer, here's what to do. If you're shopping at the commissary, which is like the, the grocery store and every base, if you're shopping at the commissary, look out for these deals like that kind of thing, (laughs) so not real commercials, but then the shows, because they were like all essentially like 12 hours behind, they would air them whenever they wanted. So what that meant was, um, we had AFN and then we also had like the MSNBC super channel, which was like they would basically, you know, all the MS, the MS, NBC shows, they would then show them in Europe, but at weird times, which meant that they would show Leno and Conan at like four and 5. PM. And then Letterman, they would show on AF on the armed forces network at like, I think it was like maybe 7. PM or something like that, huh. which meant that I could basically get home from school and, I could watch like an uninterrupted, like four hours of comedy of like, first I would sit through Leto, which was, you know, uh, had its moments, but a lot of it was kind of like, Oh, it's jaywalking. You're pointing out that this person looks weird. Like it never felt as fun. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was still like, whatever. It was still, you know, fun in its way. And then there would be like Conan and then they would show then I'd switch over to the AFN and they'd have like the Simpsons and mash and then Letterman. And I could like just watch straight through a lot of late night every single day or, you know, like four or five days out of a week. Mm -hmm.
1: So when you got back to the United States and then you went to college, Mm -hmm. which is when you you were saying you were like, okay, I can be a comedian. When you're in college, how how did you make that into what you were doing when you decided, okay, I'm going to start doing comedy?
0: um still very randomly like it was a lot of what what are some things that i like doing let me do a lot of those so it was a lot of drawing comics for the school newspaper it was which i continued doing for a little bit out of college and then it was also just like doing weird pranks and stuff like that like i had kind of too much energy to burn and i would burn it on weird things like uh I went to a very, very liberal college, the Evergreen State College. It's um, it's like a hippie college in, in Olympia, Washington. And I spent like a week try- like, convincing people that George W. Bush was going to come speak. This was when he was originally running for president. And so I was just like, every night I would go around putting up signs that said, George W. Bush, he's going to be here, you know, February 19th or whatever. And then they would take him down and put him up again. And it was just like unnecessary, weird pranks like that. So that, that was a lot of college was kind of that plus, um, comics. And then that's also when I kind of started working on what are some like prose things that I would write of writing more like, you know, like 500 to 1000 word weird prose things, which would eventually become more of like the kind of stuff that I would, uh, put in McSweeney's and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. but free McSweeney's.
1: Is there is there a big uh, comedy scene in Olympia, Washington?
0: Not really. There's actually, given the fact that it it's a, it's a city of fifty thousand people. Okay, but it has it's it like it has a music scene. It has like an independent film theater. It has a great comic shop called Danger Room Comics. Like it has all these weird things that you would expect of a much larger city because they have fought very hard to keep themselves kind of more or less like a, a downtown of local businesses and because of the college and because of like its history, like that's where Soundgarden was formed. My dorm is like one of the places where Nirvana used to play. Like it's where like Slater Kenny got their name from this road, Slater Kenny road in Lacey, Washington. Like it has this like history of music. So it draws that crowd. And then, so it has a little bit of a weird, like there's a public access station, you know, where it would become a, there was like a tiny little stand-up scene that would kind of go from there and would like put on shows on the public access show and would do shows at band venues when there wasn't a band playing and that kind of thing, or in the back of bars. So there was, but it wasn't like huge. And I never did that much with it because... It was still like at that point it was like do i want to do stand-up and i would watch some of the other stand-ups and be like i don't like this stand-up at all and so what i should have done was still done it and gotten much better at it but instead i was like ah fuck stand-up i will do other stuff instead mm-hmm.
1: olympia is where that that what the mountain is right the volcano exactly
0: uh- it's it's exactly so it's, it's just south of mount rainier so if you've ever seen like an olympia bottle of olympia beer it says like it's the water and it has like a picture of uh of mount rainier and there's also is it like rainier beer or something like that also has a picture of the same the same mount Rainier. and yeah so it's just south of that and actually i had i had grown up a little bit in olympia and one of the big things we did every year was go to the olympia brewery factory or the brewery because that was like the only big industry in Olympia. And so we would just go like every year it was, let's take a field trip to the Olympia brewery. And then eventually it got bought by I think Miller or something like that. And then they shipped it to who knows where, but originally a big selling point was, for it was in Olympia. We have this very clean water cause it's runoff from Mount Rainier. So we can make this, you know, cheap ass beer. That's whatever, but yeah.
1: Tell me what happened after you graduate from college. How did you eventually end up in New York?
0: So I want to, I had always wanted to live in New York basically since I started watching Letterman, but it kind of like I graduated from college and I still had like some student loans and I didn't really have that much money. So I just moved to Seattle and I basically made donuts for like three years to like save up money and pay off my student loans. And then during that time I would make sketch because like YouTube was just starting around then. And so it was kind of like, oh, we can make sketches and video sketches and post them online. Like the internet isn't just, you know, static text anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we would like film sketches and put those up and then try to package like try to figure out, okay, what would be episode one of Belly Up, which was the name of our sketch team. And so I did that for a couple of years and we did sketches and it was fun. Um, and then essentially like my girlfriend at the time got a job in New York. And so it was like, Hey, let's use this as a chance to let's move now. And so I moved to New York. I had known about UCB because I had seen their sketch show in my senior year of high school and I watched it a bunch in college and when I was making donuts, a guy, one of the managers on, I made donuts and then there was a coffee shop attached. And one of the managers of the coffee shop would like, he would like come back and talk to me while I was making donuts and he was taking improv classes. And it was mostly short form improv. So kind of like whose line is it anyway, style, like very, uh, but playing games, like kind of parlor game type thing. And so he mentioned like, oh, so this week. In improv class, we learned this weird new thing called the Herald, which is like, it's a long form improv. So we, they didn't tell us what to do. And so we would make up the game as we go. And apparently these people, UCB does it in New York. And I was like, oh, I know UCB. And so he described the Herald and, and like long form improv. And I'd seen some of his shows and kind of liked the idea of improv. And then, so when I moved to New York, it was like, great, I'm moving to New York. The, one of the first things I did was take a 101 class of improv and then went work some more until I got enough cash to sign up for 201 and then I quit that job, paid for 201 and then just kind of took taking class, kept taking classes and kept doing shows.
1: Okay, so you showed up to New York, not really... Did you know anybody in the comedy scene yet, or you were... Not out? at all. Wow. No,
0: I was, like, complete... And that was actually the nice thing about UCB, and that was kind of the great part about... And I think is the great part about any comedy community, is that I was able to show up, take some classes, and then some of the people in my one like, now... 10, 11 years on, I'm still good friends with. And then some of the people from like 301s through five, like all of my classes, you know, they've continued on doing comedy. And so it's like, Oh, I now know people who are on shows or writers for whatever, or doing these things in so many different places that it gives you all of these different connections. Um, that, yeah, I would not have otherwise had if it were just, a slightly shy, awkward guy showing up in the city by myself, which I also like did stand up a little bit when I first got here. And I, I stopped because it felt much more of like, Oh, everybody's fighting with each other in a way. Like there were a couple great great standups who were just like, Oh, I'm singing this been Mike, what's your name? What are you doing? How-? Like some people were absolutely great, mm-hmm. but then there were also so many that were just, I'm here and I want to be the best. Mm-hmm. And so just that vibe for me as somebody who's already a little like antisocial and kind of tentative and was much more tentative around those situations. It threw me off stand-up and sent me directly into like UCB, there's this community, there's improvisers. I, we all meet each other as we go. A lot of us are in the same boat of not really knowing anybody in comedy and kind of, we're building up our contacts essentially as we go. Mm-hmm.
1: After you finished all the classes at UCB how does it work? Can you audition to join them? Yes, that's how it works so that's what you did.
0: That's that's exactly it yeah so they have so for to, to be a UCB theater performer they have like different at the time they had uh, just what's called Herald night, which is what I'm on now and basically you audition for you just audition for that and that's pretty much it. they would have like an audition or two a year. And I would audition for that, but at the same time, like it actually, it was a little while before I got on a team, but at the same time I was auditioning for that. I was also like doing other shows and making web series and doing all of and putting up my own shows and like, you know, doing variety, show, making a variety show or, you know, writing songs and, you know, writing more things for Nick Sweeney's and other, you know, online magazines and whatnot. And so it was, that was the goal there with improv. But at the same time, it was, let me you know keep a million other burners going.
1: So you've mentioned McSweeney's now uh, a couple of times. Uh, for, for those are, who are not familiar with it, describe what it is and how it works.
0: So it's basically just like an online magazine started by uh, Dave Eggers and his publishing company, uh, which I think is also, which is also called McSweeney's. And it's essentially just like every day they have a new short humor piece up. They also do like, uh, lists and that kind of thing. And it was one of those things that like I read and I really liked the tone and the style of it. It's kind of like literate and snarky and can, it's it's sometimes very easy to do a parody of and, I will sometimes when I'm writing pieces for them specifically, I'll kind of fall into like, am I writing a parody of what I think they would like of like taking a literate reference and making it kind of lowbrow? Like what if Gulliver's travels was Kardashian What if Gulliver was a Kardashian or something like some crap like that. But that said, it was like, there's a style that I really liked and I liked so many of the pieces and like John Hodgman would write for them a lot early on. That it was just, yeah, something that I liked and then started submitting stuff for once I realized I should be submitting stuff for this. Why have I not already been submitting stuff for this? Mm-hmm.
1: So, how long total have you been submitting things and getting published there?
0: Um, I'm going to guess like four or five years. And it's pretty erratic. And actually, it'll be like, there'll be like dry spells where if I'm not writing enough, what i realized and this is true i'm using mcsweeney's as an example but this is true of pretty much like anything uh especially any online submission any like magazine submission is that there's a certain threshold of rejections to acceptances Mm -hmm. and as i went i started to realize kind of what they were for different places where there's definitely places where i know i can send something and it'll get posted and great but i realized for McSweeney's, it was about maybe like five rejections for every acceptance and it's still around there, but it was maybe like, I think I had submitted maybe 10 to 20 pieces before I got my first one in. And so at this point now it's, oh, you know what? I haven't had anything in for, I think four or five months because I've only submitted, well, actually lately I've been busy with, so zero things, but Sometimes it'll be, oh, you know what? I've only submitted two things in the last five months. I need to be submitting way more to get over that hump of acceptance to rejection, that like ratio. Mm-hmm.
1: So, d- do you find yourself writing a- a- pretty much all the time?
0: Um, I should... Basically, I find myself berating myself for not writing all the time, <laughs> uh, more than anything else, but um when, when things are going well, yes, like when I'm like definitely like, oh, I have time for this and work isn't getting in the way and life isn't getting in the way. Absolutely. And one nice part about improv or any type of performance is it gives me that deadline of I need to show up, I need to, if it's a performance, have a character ready or have you know a song ready. And if it's improv, I just need to like show up. But yeah, a lot of it becomes, in the best of times kind of working on three different pieces of okay. I've been working on a pilot Let me stop because uh, I've got some ideas for this short piece. Let me work on that. Wait I need to now work on the song for this show that I'm doing in a couple weeks mm-hmm. And it, it becomes a lot of jumping around
1: mm-hmm. So now I have to talk to you about this. I mentioned it in the introduction. I've sure. read it on your website and I was so intrigued by it. And so I just got to hear what it's like. Um, Tell me about how you got the job working for Princeton Review.
0: So I basically, I tutored, like I taught classes for them. I tutored and then I kind of like worked my way through after tutoring for a while. I, for them, I would like write, they had an open call for like writing test questions, like writing individual questions. And then I kind of worked my way from writing questions to editing questions to then writing their tests and writing their books and doing a lot of that stuff for a while. So and essentially, yeah, it was a lot of what I mentioned with the Letterman thing of uh-huh. breaking things down piece by piece of kind of looking, it's, it's very similar to kind of deconstructing a joke in a way. In that if I look at a math question on the SAT, for instance, If I want to write a similar test question to that question, right? So that way it tests the same things. Mm -hmm. I want to think of what are the things that make this a hard question or an easy question, what are the different steps and like, what types of numbers do they use? Do they use numbers that are, you can easily do the math in your head. Do they do use numbers where they can throw you off? are there only really two steps in this question or are there five different ways to do this question? And does my question that I've written also have those five ways. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very analytical piece by piece. What is everything work? Uh, what is every piece of this question and why did the person who wrote it, put it in that way, right? What were they trying to drive the test taker to do in the same way that like, when you're breaking apart a joke, it's like, okay why why in this rodney dangerfield joke does he start here what is he try, trying to drive the audience towards before he whips them back for the punchline, mm-hmm. or you know so on
1: when you wrote question did you ever try to incorporate humor into your questions
0: um much more in the manual writing i would which actually kind of became um I wouldn't say it. Well, it kind of became an issue only in that. So like, for instance, there was a SAT manual for the Princeton Review, like which they would use for their classes, Mm -hmm. which I wrote. And you know how in like test booklets, I would add jokes in that basically. And the problem is some of the teachers who had no sense of humor would think that the jokes were like, uh, think the jokes were like typos or stuff like that. Huh. So like there was one joke where this is just such a dumb, like little throwaway joke, but you know, the pages and tests where it says this page is intentionally left blank, mm-hmm. right? And they do that that way. It's like, oh, you get to the end of the section and you can't see the next section, right? Right, simple. So in the manual, we wanted to do that same thing for some pages. So it's like, oh, I have a reading passage here, I'm going to put this this is going to be a blank page that way on the next page, the reading passage is facing the questions about that reading passage. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it would say this page intentionally left blank. Sometimes it would say like this page unintentionally left blank, like very dumb, simple things. And I would get emails from teachers saying like, uh, there's a typo on page three seventy six. It says this page unintentionally left blank. And it's like, Man, I can't help you. I don't, like, I don't know what you want from me. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah.
1: Right. So so your, the books that you were writing, was it just for the SAT or other tests?
0: It was uh, SAT, the GRE, and then I would also did some work on like the GMAT and the ACT and some other tests like that. But it was primarily the SAT and the GRE. You know. Oh, and the other place. Oh, go for it.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Where, where, where else?
0: Oh, the the other place where it was kind of easy to incorporate comedy in because it was like, you know what, I'm doing this to make a buck, but at least let me be slightly happy while doing it was examples, especially in grammar. It was very easy to kind of slip in like a a weirder uh, grammatical example or just kind of like more like funnier examples that show some sort of grammatical error rather than just like the same standard ones, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. well i, I was yeah. gonna i was gonna tell you my my favorite test taking moment like i've been removed i'm in my second year of college now so i've been removed mm-hmm. from all that for two, three years now uh, but my favorite moment ever came when I was taking the ACT and I mentioned the science, uh, portion to you, but uh-huh. I did not mention the, the English part when we flipped open and, uh, I flipped the test open and there was a book excerpt and it's still to this day, the only time this has ever happened to me. And it was a excerpt from Steve Martin's book born standing up. Ooh, and yeah, I had, I have yeah. I've read that book. And so I got so excited cuz I'm like, oh my god, I've read this book and like I'm looking around, I'm looking around the room and like but, and like I'm so excited and everyone is just all sad, they're just taking the test. <laughs> it's all depressing and I'm like, like you guys don't understand. You know, this is so funny. So, <laughs> that was that was my one happy moment where I've read a passage from a a test before.
0: Which they like Studies have shown if you know or are excited about the passage, you do much better on that on questions related to it.
1: Yeah. I mean I, would,
0: yeah, I would most people view each one as like a very like detached, even when they're fun pass when I know it's come from a book like that, if you take it out of context and students don't know it, they will treat the funniest passage as just like, I don't know what's going on. Why are they doing this? Why is this guy so weird? Why is she acting like this? Just because we're, it's that we're used to standardized test is tests being terrible and humorless, which they are. And they're a terrible institution that our country has because it's cheap and used to be racist and blah, 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 mm-hmm. but historical backstory. But we still have those like impulses so that, yeah, you were the only one who knew this was from one of the funniest people who's ever lived, but Everybody else was probably just reading it like it was part of a encyclopedia.
1: Right. Yeah. The thing that the thing that blows my mind is even to this day. You know, being twenty years old, I'll I'll talk to my friends about Steve Martin, and people will my age will be like, I don't know who that is.
0: Yeah. In 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 the SAT, there used to be a, a like a big grammar section, mm-hmm. and I would use. Um, I would use like different examples to teach different words, right? And one of the examples that I would use for, to get people to remember the word sycophant was uh, Smithers. I would go like, okay, you guys know Waylon Smithers from the Simpsons, right? He's like, Mr. Burns, like, you know, know, uh, Toady, like he's, you know, Uh, he is a sycophant. Whatever Mr. Burns says, he will always say, yes, yes, Mr. Burns, you're right, Mr. Burns. Mm And every year, as I would teach SAT classes, fewer and fewer students would know who uh, Mr. Smithers was. Right. And so it would just be like year by year showing that like generational difference in comedy of like what continues and what doesn't. And yeah.
1: Right. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to think of how it changes and it shifts. But I guess, you know, when it comes to comedy, when it comes to anything, that's just how it progresses. And the old ones yeah. forgotten, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, I mean, that's not always the worst thing, especially as like, like I was such a huge Conan fan and still am, but there's so much of it that now like feels so dated. Like there was a lot of his jokes in like the late nineties, the jokes would be like, Oh, Hey, Max, are you having sex with men? Uh Uh-oh, like which (laughs) they are jokes that do not work for good reason now, right? Right, and then, but at the time, it was very much that kind of like, you know, like, like I'm gonna say like Harvard dude, but definitely like college dude, uh, joke structure of like, oh, nothing's grosser than than gay sex. And Conan had a lot more going than that. I'm picking that one thing out, but yeah, those things like now when we rewatch it, it's like those weird things will pop up. Steve Martin does not seem like that though. Like Steve Martin feels like maybe the most timeless of comedians we have of, right? Like, I don't know what those things would be that like, oh, this really dates Steve Martin and makes him slightly unpalatable now.
1: Right, well, I agree. I think too, when it comes to Steve Martin is because his jokes were never, like it was never pop culture stuff it was always about the sure. character and so like like for example the balloon bit where he just makes a balloon and he says this is an amoeba or whatever it is you could right. you could apply that 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 could go on for years and years and years and still be funny forever yes um but when you get to more like the the very specific jokes about that era and that time like you know don rickle's roast of ronald reagan might not be as fun as it was then so it's just you know it's the different types of comedy and what can last yeah yeah it's very true
0: there's a uh Woody, there's like one Woody Allen CD, which obviously there's many other reasons now that listening to Woody Allen is... <laughs> but like, even when, like, in college, I was a huge Woody Allen fan. I, like watched all of his movies and he has like one stand-up album and some of the jokes were like very good. They were like closer to his New Yorker type pieces. But then some of the jokes, they would be references of like the current literary critic for the Times or something like that, where it's like, I could not care less about... who this joke is referencing Uh, with Steve Martin. I wonder also how much of it is, although there is a timeless to timelessness to that, there's also a, so much of it, so much of the kind of like newness of it was, Oh, he's doing this in, he's bringing that kind of rock star ish persona to like the jerk persona to stand up. In a way that before, since all stand-up was that kind of like Don Rickles, like, here's my joke, here's my joke, here's my joke, that was the joke, Mm -hmm. and him kind of bring that looseness, we now assume that looseness to such an extent that that part no longer seems as fresh.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. It's true. I mean, you see, like, what Steve Martin did was so innovative. It was so amazing. And and now, I mean, you could find tons of examples of people who are being very similar to that and are adding different elements into their stand-up comedy that's not just the, here's the joke, here's the joke, here's the joke.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: So, it, yeah, I mean, but that's how, you know, comedy's evolving and the way it evolves. Yeah. Like, I think when when we talk about uh, the evolution of it, one guy that stands out in my mind is definitely Bo Burnham and the stuff he does, where it's with all the music comedy, and he has so many special effects and what he does. And just it's very different. It's all the different types of comedy now
0: and. And are you thinking of Bo Burnham specifically because he uh kind of like I'm going to say casts a wider net because he doesn't have like well this is the one Bo Burnham thing it's not like a Ronnie Dangerfield you know <laughs> take my way I get no like that kind of like no respect but that he's doing it in so many disparate ways is that what you-
1: right and I I don't know like when when I think of uh Bo Burn and maybe maybe the reason why I'm comparing both of them is because both of them have songs in there and are sure yes um but like I think of Bo Burnham stuff where it's just very it's very different like uh one one instance that stands out to me is in one of his stand-up specials and he he says something like you might think that uh this show is is extremely planned out and in fact you'd be correct it's extremely planned out and then he makes his fingers in the shape of a gun and puts down his thumb like he fires and there's a sound effect that goes bang but like it's the exact moment so i don't know it's like it's very it's very very different it's very unique
0: and that's like a great like kind of like Yeah, he's I mean, he's like pretty young and he definitely seems like one of those like nerds of comedy, like Mm -hmm. stealing from like stealing in the best possible way from like, oh, what can I take from like the like Penn and Teller or Steve Martin or like all of those like little disparate things to put together one incredibly planned out show that still manages to surprise.
1: Right. I mean, it's like uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a quote where he says, good comedians copy, great comedians steal. Right. So it's it's very similar to that where you're right, Bo Burnham...
0: Which I think he took... I think he took from Oscar Wilde.
1: Mm-hmm. How you, well, yeah. put that, well, that's why he's great. He's, he, yeah. look, he took it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're absolutely right about Bo Burnham where he just – he saw all the little different things and was like, let me morph this together into this one character in this one show. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I know too, in addition to you performing and doing mm-hmm. all, all different types of improv, you also coach and teach improv. Is that, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Y- yep. So what, which do you like more? Do you think the teaching part or the performing part?
0: Um, I mean the performing part hands down, like that's why I do it. But like, If I'm working with a team, like coaching them gives me a chance to analyze what works and doesn't work in their comedy, which then gives me a chance to re-establish with myself. What am I doing that might be working and not working? And what am I doing the same thing that I'm now noting this person of like, Hey, all you're doing is just saying, Hey, that's funny, but you're not adding to it. Add to it. Oh, wait. Oh my God. Do I do that? Did I do that in the last show I did? Mm-hmm. And so it kind of forces me to consistently reevaluate comedy in general, or the comedy that I'm seeing in general. And it's a bit of a like a um, I'm looking specifically then at uh, um improv comedy, but it's still like yeah, it forces me to relook at do I really like this right? Mm-hmm. And-, and so. It helps kind of further hone what I'm doing, but definitely performing more than anything. Mm-hmm.
1: How many total teams or people do you coach currently?
0: It, right now, I'm actually I'm on kind of a hiatus. I was coaching a bunch a little bit ago, but normally I'll have like, one or two, what are called like house teams. Mm-hmm. So at the UCB theater, like there's UCB, t- uh, theater, perf- uh, house teams that the theater has created. And so like, I'm on a team called Fluffy with Bill a Piero and a bunch of other great people mm-hmm. and which was formerly like sleuth. And then they changed a couple people. And so we just changed the name real quick, basically, but, uh, I'll normally coach one or two of them and then a couple other groups of people who are like either doing shows elsewhere or are hoping to get on a UCB house team.
1: Okay. All right. So, okay. I see now. Um, And from, from all your teaching and all your performing, is that where Mm -hmm. your podcast improv beat by beat came from?
0: Yes, exactly. And so a lot of it was having like, so I've been in New York, like almost 11, like 11 years, almost 12 years, I guess now. And so doing improv for like a long time and seeing a bunch of things you see, you see in the same way that we were talking about with comedy of like those different, um, waves with the different, like, you know, things in comedy that are big in improv, there would be a lot of like institutional knowledge that would then go so there'd be like amazing teachers and then they would like all move to la and then you know write for shows out there or perform out there or they'd get their own shows and that kind of thing and then the people they taught would teach classes or coach teams and then they might leave and go on and so i noticed there was a bunch of kind of i would hear like I would hear the copy of the copy of the copy of a note. I remember maybe Anthony King, who was, who's a, uh, a TV writer out in LA, but like, is the former artistic director of UCB, like I remember Anthony King giving us in a class and then hearing like somebody who heard that from somebody who heard that. And so what I wanted to do was like, oh, let me just interview a bunch of different comedians and bring together topic by topic what they currently know and love about improv as kind of a a way of just like let's put down this information and let's get all of the different perspectives because there's going to be things where people disagree vehemently and i think why they disagree is very interesting like um anytime like who's like a very divisive like uh stand-up or comedian oh i mean well woody allen obviously is one but that's for 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 other reasons but like that kind of like Oh, you know, what? I think Norm Macdonald's is not a, a bad one. There are people who just like do not find him funny. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who find him absolutely hilarious and digging into why people hate or love him, I think says a lot about how people view that comedy or view, view comedy in general. And so the idea with the podcast was even if people are disagreeing, what are their points of agreement? Right. And there are points that like everybody agrees on across both for comedy and for improv comedy. And then with those points of disagreement, let's get into the reasons they disagree. Cause that's more interesting than the disagreement itself, mm-hmm. because somewhere there's a base level where both people are arguing the same thing, but think that whatever we're disagreeing on has the opposite effect to get away from what they want. Mm-hmm. We both want both sides of whatever disagreement want to be funny and put on the best show they want to do that by doing you know point a goes to point b goes to point c and somewhere along the lines two people who disagree about something just have this uh think that this is having an opposite uh, effect from what somebody else thought so yeah so that was the idea for the podcast was just let me get a bunch of different opinions and then kind of group them radio lab or this american lifestyle into themes so that way it's not just one person giving uh his or her opinion but that way it's how what does everybody think about um first beats in a herald which basically means in the herald uh improv form you will see scenes a first time which are called first beats and then you'll return to them for second beats and then you'll return to those same comedic premises again for third beats and so it's like well what do you all want to see in that first presentation of the comedic premise to the audience in that Mm -hmm. first scene or that first sketch, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
1: Wow. Well, I think it's a great idea for the show because I like having a bunch of people getting together and discussing their perspectives and their opinions. Because in doing that, I mean, I'm sure did did you learn a ton from talking with all these different people? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, and some of it was just like, oh, this thing that I thought I came up with or that I've been saying to people – Other people are saying, too, I am right to say this. Or, oh, I've been putting it in this way that's slightly vague. This is the more crystallized version of that, that some other improviser is like, oh, hey, can I steal what you've been saying for that? So it absolutely helped a lot.
1: And I'd like to say, just for the record, um, I'm a fan of Norm MacDonald.
0: Good, just, just good.
1: To, to put it out there, to put it on the record, and I have to say, his YouTube series, the the Norm McDonald Show, is hilarious. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes, uh, but it is it, it is so good on so many different levels.
0: Um, <laughs> it, there, there's some people where it's just kind of like it's that like there are so many levels, like you said, of why norm is funny, but like, even just his cadence, like that was one of those things that like, get it, like understanding characters of like letterman also had that, which is, I think why norm could do such a great letterman, but just something about, like, he knows when to pause also in that Jack Benny way of like, as hey, so, uh, I was uh, walking down the street. and uh hey, what's that? Uh, yeah sidewalk there you know like he would just like find this weird spot to like let the audience kind of like feel like they're above water for a second and then plunge them back in like it just right. made no sense but yeah it it, it adds something to that th- that delivery kind of gives you th- this certain feeling that makes the the punchline sit even harder
1: right and for me like watching his stand first of all that was th- that was a tremendously good impression of him. It it really caught me off guard (laughs) when you started doing it uh, because I was like, oh, snap, like he sounds just like him. But the thing about his stand-up is his stand-up, like the words are so important and you can tell how like everything is crafted in such a way, but he makes it seem like he doesn't remember anything he's about to tell you and he's just like, what am I saying? Oh, yeah, there was this and you know, oh, right, this happened too, but everything is... it's like a puzzle so that's what i yeah about it, how it's a total act but it's so funny just the way he does it and
0: you see that on on late night shows all the time it's that dividing line between i mean they're all pre-planned they have the little blue card you know some uh, a, a pa has interviewed the celebrity already they know what stories they're going to tell but you can tell that difference between the ones who can really act and pretend like oh you know what you're right There was, we were getting our deck resanded and the weirdest, yeah, the weirdest thing happened. So here, so Dave, here's like, and who can like sell it as if they're just thinking of it and the people who were like, yes, there were many hijinks on the set. One such hijink was (laughs) like, right? And yeah, Norm is so good at that. And I mean, stand up in general is that because it's all, in improv, we're making it up for the first time and you never see it again. And it's very fun and that's very freeing. And stand up is so much of, you have to deliver every line. Like it's the first time, even when it's, oh, you know, this thing happened the other day. The other day was probably 40 years ago when this dude wrote this joke, right. but like you have to deliver it. Like, yeah, you know, just the other day, this guy came up to me and looked at his dog. And was like, can you believe this dog? I was like, what? Uh, like I don't know what this, but like that happened years ago. Why are you still talking about this? Right. Because you have a good punchline for this way ass mass store.
1: Right, yeah. And, you know, I will say too, just bringing it back to late night, that's why one of my favorite, well, my, uh, let's see, my favorite late night hosts of all all time are david letterman i love conan and i love jimmy kimmel but i also Mm -hmm. loved craig ferguson i loved him i thought that's where you're going yeah and i liked it because it goes to to what you're saying where it it wasn't like he didn't have a blue card and in fact before every Mm -hmm. interview he ripped up the blue card just to show you that look that what we're about to talk about is made up we're improvising it right here and so I think, and you can find it on YouTube. It's easily searchable. But his interview with Robin Williams is like off the chain. Yeah, because it, nothing is scripted out. Nothing's planned out. It's just you know Craig Ferguson feeding off Robin Williams and vice versa, just back and forth. Yes. and it went to places that you couldn't plan out if you wanted to. Yeah, you know. Um. So I I like the uh the like you were saying the stand ups and the talk show hosts who either make it seem effortless as in this has not been planned out or the people who truly do it like craig ferguson
0: yes and craig ferguson was such a breath of fresh air in that it was the exact opposite in that it what he was putting so much effort into it to make it to do that and it was so new to see that kind of like him changing how he did monologues Mm. which is so like such simple and Such a simple, dumb thing, but every single person who ever had a talk show, they would do test runs. They would try throwing out the monologue and then they would realize, no, we need an opening monologue. And for him to like fundamentally change how that was presented was so new. And he got away with it because of, yeah, exactly how you said. He would just react and flow with whatever the audience was giving him or with his interviews, whatever the interviewee was giving, was giving him.
1: Right. And I mean, he had a sidekick that was two interns in a horse costume and a robot named Jeff Peter. <laughs> yes. So he was, you know, he was, he was doing what Letterman had done back in the eighties and in the nineties doing making late night new again. You yeah. Know? Um, so I, yeah, I'm a huge Craig Ferguson fan. I was very sad when he decided to step down. It was, yeah, that was was a heartbreaking time for me, but we made it through. We're okay now. (laughs) (laughs) that, That was a time, but I'm glad that you appreciated him too. And you enjoyed his comedy. Yeah. So now as, as we wrap up the interview, I do have one last question for you. Um, and it's a question I ask all of my guests, uh, because it's so great and people have such awesome answers. So good luck. Here we go. Uh, the The question is, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give them?
0: Um, work as much as you possibly can at everything you love doing and stop doing the shit that you don't love doing which may include video games.
1: <laughs>
0: that so essentially like, I, does it make, yeah, I don't know. I have so many friends who are so very funny and, and I do this too, especially like when I'm depressed or something like that, it'll be, oh, I just spent 60 hours of my life finding potatoes in a fantasy world. So I could complete something rather than fuck. I could have written uh, you know, two chapters of a book in that time. Uh-huh. And, and so, Definitely there are everybody should have hobbies and live full exciting lives and do a million things. But if you want to do comedy and if you love doing comedy, do comedy. Like everything else you do is going to be is going to be a distraction and you will need distractions. So don't give up those distractions and don't feel like you should be writing 23 hours a day or beating yourself up about write, not writing 23 hours a day. But people will find ways to convince themselves. People will find ways to get in their own way. And there are many of those drinking is a common one. Video games are a very common one, especially with, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Especially with like, I think like anybody younger than 40, like that's just kind of like what we grew up on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's my overall advice is just do it as much as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very well said. Very true. Um, and uh, now, Curtis, if people want to reach out to you or maybe find you or listen to mm-hmm. your improv Beat by Beat podcast, how can people find you or see you perform?
0: So you can see me perform uh, Tuesdays and random other nights at UCB Theater, Hell's Kitchen, which you can go to hellskitchen.ucb Dot com maybe ucb theater you can google ucb theater hell's kitchen and you can find my team fluffy and i also perform with a team called megaplex which does an improvised movie and a bunch of other things you can also find my podcast and things that i've written at curtisrutherford.com which is c-u-r-t-i-s-r-e-t-h-e-r-f-o-r-d and that has links to my podcast improv beat by beat and all the web series and print and uh you know printed things and the online things that i've done there
1: perfect yeah you have a very royal sounding name
0: <laughs> thanks yeah it is very like yeah rutherford is a very scottish name i guess and so yes it, like yeah, it
1: sounds very formal. like I feel I felt like when I introduced you, I should have trumpets or like <laughs> <just> something. <laughs> uh, well, well, Curtis, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thanks for having me. Likewise, this was was great.
1: Yeah, it was a blast talking about, uh, you know, comedians, comedy, stand-up, the Princeton Review, and hearing your Norm MacDonald impression (laughs) because that was definitely a highlight for me. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you so much. And to anybody listening, remember, you can find us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night, and you can also find us on iTunes where you can take a listen and then give us a rating and leave us a review. So thanks again for courtesy for being on the show. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.